Hello boys and girls, welcome to story time with mummy. Do you feel a little bit uncomfortable? That's the Madonna Hall Complex. G'day and welcome back to the Eloquent In The Room podcast. I'm Rose Cooper and we're in the middle bit of the Madonna Hall Diaries series. We spoke last time to Megan, who is a sex worker from Denver, Colorado, had a lovely chat about how she's viewed herself and sex work over the years, how that's changed and evolved, how she internalized some whorephobia, she referred to it as these days, I guess, sex worker phobia, we'd call it. You know what? We don't use the word whore much in Australia, to my knowledge. It's just not a word that rolls off the tongue like slut. (laughs) We use slut quite a lot. And I reclaimed slut years and years ago. I never thought of it as someone insulting me. I just figured a slut was just a stud by its female name. Yeah, like sex, whatever, you know. So yeah, that was a really interesting chat. And on this occasion, we're going to chat to Phoebe. It's going to be split into two parts as well. And we spoke to Phoebe a few weeks ago about her growing up in a religious cult. It's great having met Phoebs. She actually got in touch with me, wanting to interview me about my life um, after a certain age, after menopause and after children and all that sort of stuff for her podcast called, interestingly enough, Sexuality After and I was one of her after people. I believe that episode is coming up in a few weeks, sometime during October. And during the course of our conversation, we talked about the fact that she is expecting a baby and we talked about our sexuality a lot. (laughs) Between her podcast and the interview I did with her, we talked about a lot of stuff. And she messaged me afterwards saying, I'm really interested in talking about sexuality and pregnancy, motherhood, breastfeeding, all that sort of stuff. And so it just worked in really beautifully for me to incorporate this conversation into a series with the previous conversation and the one I've got coming up next. Obviously, it doesn't cover all the breadth and depth of the Madonna Hall concept. It's so complicated and nuanced and I'm going to keep talking about it in some way, shape or form in my Instagram and now TikTok output, throwing out the occasional hypocrisy about the double standards and things like that. So it is a pet hate of mine, the Madonna whore thing. I think every woman has experienced it to some degree and not really known that there was a name for it. And those who do know that there's a name for it may still have a narrow definition of it. So I thought we'd explore all sorts of facets of it. So we're talking to Phoebe about motherhood, childbirth, all that sort of stuff. And talking to Phoebe herself, a podcaster, it was really interesting because... I'm watching her face as we're talking on Zoom and she takes lovely big pauses to gather her thoughts and then she asks me questions, like really deep, thoughtful questions during the conversation. And I know that what she has asked me is going to take me off on a bit of a tangent down lots of rabbit holes. So keeping the flow 
and sequence of this conversation has been a little bit challenging. Like it was prudent for me to do a bit of judicious editing here, there and everywhere. But I wanted to maintain the Madonna Hall concept and also really dig deep into the taboos associated with sexuality and motherhood, particularly around breastfeeding. So this part of the conversation, we talk mostly about pregnancy and birth. And towards the end, we start to talk about the more nitty-gritty, erogenous, erotic properties of breastfeeding. And I thought that would be a good place to leave it because it's a bit of a tit hanger. (laughs) In my interview with Megan, we had a clit hanger. So this is a bit of a tit hanger because it's it's a lot to take on. It's a lot to take on. It's a lot to take on for women who have had children to listen to women talking about having children. It's emotional labor to talk about this stuff. It also feels unwieldy talking about it really openly because while women do talk about it from time to time and share their war stories... It still feels like secret women's business to a certain degree and you tend to get wary if there are younger women around in earshot or actually part of the conversation not to be too graphic and gory and uh, dwell too much on what for some people, including myself, is a fucking traumatic experience because women are supposed to just suck it up. Um, Whether or not you are a mother or you decide not to be a mother, and my hat's off to you. I have tremendous respect for people who actually consciously decide that having children is not for them rather than following the narrative blindly, like I pretty much did. Um, I have a very strong maternal instinct, but had I been born a few decades later, would I have built so much of my self-esteem and my sense of purpose and whatever around having babies as I subsequently did just because I was born in the 60s? Who knows? I have no judgment of people who don't want to have kids. But the fact of the matter is we all have mothers and society, particularly the patriarchy, has little understanding of sympathy for, empathy for, and appreciation of what a total transformation in mind, body and spirit it is to go from before having had a child to after having had a child. The psychological smack in the face it is. The hormonal assault, the change in your body, the various aches and pains throughout pregnancy, the wondrous things like feeling the first kicks and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Towards the end, how awkward it is, how heavy it is, how hard it is to get out of bed, get out of chairs, tie your shoelaces, have clothes that fit you. Feeling awkward because your pelvis is in a completely different kind of spot in your body than it was before. So you tend to waddle. Everything changes. And then there's such a big build-up to having a baby. Then you go through the childbirth and you don't really get a chance to process what has just happened to you because you're assaulted by the needs of a beautiful baby and no sleep and cluelessness about stuff. You can read all the books and everything, but until you're navigating these things, they're all skills. They're all learned skills. There's a lot of instinct around it, absolutely. 
but there's also a lot of exasperation because it means so much to you to do a good job and society demands that we do a good job that we don't fall apart that we don't get sad or depressed we've always got to be serene and happy and glowing and blooming and blossoming and maternal and da 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 and I think most of us develop selective memories about that sometimes. And talking to Phoebe about it for the next few days, I found myself really remembering it, what it was like, and thinking to myself at the time, I'll never forget this. I'll never forget what this is like. I'll never forget this major stuff. But you know what? There's lots that you do forget because there's no time to stop and think you just have to do and then you blink and they're two and then you blink and they're at school and then you blink and they're at high school and then you blink and they're asking for the keys to your car and then they leave home and you're like well that was interesting I do remember thinking that wasn't in the brochure anyway not to get too down about motherhood it is something that definitely made my life that much sweeter and more fulfilling I have no qualms in it in saying that at all but I'm looking for balance here we're talking about the Madonna Hall concept we're talking about women and their sexuality being the absolute barometer of what makes a woman valid and interesting to men is their sexuality and motherhood seems to give people pause to put that aside put it completely aside and that is the madonna hall complex in the nutshell as it were the two sides of the same coin women are either objects to be looked at vessels to fuck or vessels for human beings to pass through and thereby making their vessel a sacred angelic vessel certainly not one who could enjoy sex During the course of this conversation, because it was relevant, I again talk about the birth of my second child, which resulted in an orgasmic labor contraction, which was part of my sexual awakening and awareness of the vagus nervous system and all that sort of stuff, which I describe quite vividly in episode four of my first series, which was called 2020, An Orgasmic Oddity. And I thought rather than leave that in, I would instead take it out and go back to that episode four and take that snippet of that little birth story. It's five minutes long, so I'm going to pop it in here and that's then going to lead into my conversation with Phoebe because it's all relative, it's all relevant, but I just thought rather than have you listen to the same story told a different way again, I'd put that story in here, give you the opportunity of listening to it for the first time or skipping listening to it again. Please stick around at the end of this segment of the interview with Phoebe because I've got some exciting news to share with you. was chemically induced with synthetic oxytocin. After the needle went in, regular contractions started almost immediately. Because I'd had experience with labor pains, I kind of knew what to expect, but because my first labor took 24 hours and resulted in a forceps delivery, I had no preconceptions about 
how this would pan out time-wise. I just knew I was better prepared for Armageddon than the last time. Remembering that being tense makes the pain worse, I immediately assumed ragdoll mode. Closed my eyes, relaxed, breathed deeply and moaned softly with each out-breath. I knew this was supposed to work the first time too, but I had no idea what the pain would be like and baby number one wasn't in the best position for a quick and easy birth. Unlike this little rascal, in an hour the contractions were already five minutes apart and very painful. I got the message this was not going to take anywhere near as long. I told the nurse I should urinate because I knew from the first time that a full bladder would be bad news. So the nurse popped a bedpan onto the chair next to the bed and I straddled it, leaned forward, propped my elbows on the backrest and willed myself to relax in order to pee between contractions, which was no mean feat. I took deeper breaths and let out louder moans to distract me from the pain. I peed successfully, but the breathing and moaning really helped me cope with the pain, so I kept it up, breathing deeper, moaning more forcefully. Then it happened. Um, (laughs) A contraction hit. I moaned loudly. The moan became more of a grunt, and I could actually feel my cervix dilate, which was weird but amazing. My body succumbed to that opening up in a way I recognised as undeniably orgasmic. It still hurt, but because orgasm actually dulls pain, it felt excruciating and euphoric simultaneously. I don't know what to tell you except it was a fucking orgasm. Alas, it was just that one. The labour lasted four hours. My third birth experience was a drawn-out stop-start affair lasting 37 hours. I'm not here to tell you natural childbirth is easy or orgasmic Uh, all the time. Um, I had the right frame of mind going into it each time and all were different. It's a lottery. So what happened that second time? With what I now know about oxytocin, I realise it was the perfect storm. Labour triggers it naturally, and I was being fed the synthetic stuff on top of that, and my connection to my breath and my voice was also producing oxytocin. I was doing so many oxytocin shots that morning, my orgasm was inevitable, especially seeing as it's not in my nature to be quiet during childbirth. You scream, I scream, we all scream that Consequently, from that day forward, I realised I'd uncovered a new spot or two. My breath and my voice became a direct pathway to this space deep in my core. This is how I learned to breathe my way to orgasm without being touched at all, just using breathing, moaning and focusing on the energy and squeezing my vaginal muscles. It takes effort to make one of these happen from scratch, but once engaged, the energy can travel upwards to burst forth from my abdomen at orgasm or through my chest or along the complete length and breadth of me and out through the top of my head or out through my vagina. I like to visualize rays of light and fireworks when that's happening. I've read articles that claim that this kind of orgasm is not considered to be the same as vaginal or clitoral orgasms. Sexuality researchers seem to need to name orgasms by their trigger. So they reckon people who come via intercourse with 
simultaneous clitoral stimulation are experiencing a blended orgasm. This doesn't make sense to me because I would argue that if that's the case, then kissing during intercourse or having your boobs sucked during mutual masturbation should also be considered a blended orgasm. Regardless, engaging with my voice gives me a direct line to that internal orgasmic tripwire, triggering the orgasm and magnifying it, making it last longer. The orgasm is a wave and I surf it with my vocalization. If any researchers are listening, I'm here to tell you that my hands-free orgasms are still followed by the usual telltale vaginal contractions. I'm not making this up. I read one article that said thinking orgasms did not trigger contractions. We've become so clit blind and intercourse focused, we cannot see what's under our noses or more accurately inside our heads. the dynamics of sexual identification in the eyes of other people having just been you know having a lot of uh, one night stands and and being married and being pregnant and breastfeeding and having giving birth and all the stuff that we as women are encouraged to feel anxious about mm-hmm. because it's going to somehow destroy our life as a, a desirable human being. <laughs> it's going to destroy our body. It's going to destroy our libido, all of this stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I never experienced that as a outcome for various reasons. I, I had a positive outcome. Yeah. But it was a long-term thing. But the anxiety and identity crisis and all that sort of stuff at the time of having my first and second child was something I had to work through because I was society conditioned. What about you, my love? How did you feel before having children? How did you feel when you found out you're pregnant? Like having uh, a sexual awakening in recent years, was there a conflict at all? Um, I had my sexual awakening primarily sort of starting before my son, but mostly after, Mm. actually. Um. But I definitely was concerned about what would happen after I had a kid because you hear that you just don't want sex anymore and you don't, you just don't have sex, whether you want it or not, you just don't have sex. You don't have energy for sex or desire for it after. Yeah. And I found that to be partly true in some ways, but not in others. I think the biggest thing for me has been energy. Like you need energy to have really great sex. I think when you have little kids, you end up having a lot of lazy sex (laughs) or scratch the itch sex, Mm. which I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Mm. You got to do, you got to do and work with what you have. I've just put the baby down. We've got, you know, we're on the clock, got a feeling the baby's going to wake up, but you're you're aware that you're going to get disturbed. Yeah, it's hard Mm -hmm. to relax into it sometimes. And then that puts a lot of pressure too to like have sex and kind of orgasm right away instead of being able to take your time and really enjoy the experience, enjoy each other. (laughs) That's why I think it's so important for parents to find ways as soon as they can really to have a night off or... Mm -hmm 
to go away for the weekend a couple times a year or anything like that where they can just relax yeah into each other relax into sex again remember what that's like (laughs) as far as libido goes I think it's different for everybody you I want to hear your story because you've mentioned it a few times about your sexual discovery through being a mom and breastfeeding and everything by the sounds of it sounds fascinating because that is not my experience. I'm mm. here to offer a different experience, which mm. is like, I didn't find breastfeeding sexual or sexy. I wouldn't say it connected me deeper to my sexuality or having kids necessarily or a kid. I don't think it really connected me any deeper to my sexuality, but I'd love to hear from you how that happened for you because I think that's really cool. Well, before we get on to me, because we will, how did it play out between you and your partner when you fell pregnant? Like, how did you feel that their opinion or, or a desire for you might change? Like, did you have any either societal or religious feelings about whether or not you were going to become more attractive or less attractive while you were pregnant? I don't remember any, definitely no religious connection with that, which is interesting. Mm. And I can't remember a lot of societal stuff either. I think in part, in large part, probably because my partner was really supportive at the time and he, he didn't find me more attractive because I was pregnant. Like some men find pregnant women and some women would find pregnant women very sexy, Mm -hmm. like extra sexy. Mm -hmm. And he didn't feel that way, but he also didn't find me less attractive or less sexy. Mm -hmm. It's just same with this baby that I'm going to have in two weeks. Mm -hmm. It's like just being really pregnant is awkward. And Mm -hmm. there's so few sex positions that you feel comfortable in Mm. and it might hurt more because your cervix is lower and there's Mm. then you can't breathe because the baby's kicking and it's like uh, you know so there's all that kind of stuff that impacts him as well as Mm. me but I don't think I never have gotten the feeling that he finds me less attractive because I'm Mm. pregnant and I think Mm. that really helped a lot Mm. and like bearing in mind the whole Madonna horse scenario do you feel that there was any at all shift in him treating you differently just because you're you're becoming a mother and like you know seeing you with more angelic (laughs) sort of lens I don't I don't feel like that was my experience which I'm really happy about and (laughs) I think that happens to a lot of women though and men they experience that Mm. that shift in perspective either of themselves as women or of their partners I think for us we found each other more attractive and since having a kid I find other parents sexier than people that don't have children actually that's what I was gonna ask too because I know that before I had children when I was still like a teenager and hanging out in a small town and we had friends like couple friends and they were all in different stages of their fertility some had some were pregnant some had already had kids some had kids at school it was because it was a small town we were mixing with people from a larger age group and 
I definitely found some of the women, not realising obviously that it could be just because I'm attracted to certain women anyway, but certain women who had a child and seemed to have this kind of authoritarian, and I don't mean that in a negative way, just sort of a um, this is how things are done around here, kind of just just really um, uh, 100% focus on ch- the child and it just felt like they their priority was there and that their partner was their support. You could just see this sort of dynamic around this woman's awareness of her importance in this equation. Yeah. And also I felt this earthy quality about her, again, could have just been because she was a sexy woman anyway, but just this earthy quality that I personally felt a, a, a bit of a pang of envy around, like I say, I was very young, a pang of envy around that I felt if I was to become a mother, I hope I am imbued with this same kind of earthy energy that she's got going on. Like I could just sort of notice that one minute I was seeing mothers in a certain way, next minute I was seeing a, a sensuality and a sense of empowerment and just a, a feminine aura that really changed my mind about how pregnancy might affect me or how having children might affect me in a way that connected me more to myself and my place in the world, if that That's makes really sense. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to I want to add a codicil there that I'm not sort of prescribing that because I'm a mother that makes me more or less of anything to do with any gender role binary or, or all that. This is just who I am deep down. Yeah. M- my mother raised me continually reinforcing the fact that being a mother was the pretty much the only thing that made her happy. Mm-hmm. So I was influenced by her state of mind around that and I always knew that I wanted to be a mum so it was a very fulfilling sort of scary (laughs) but fulfilling thing that I knew that from the time I was young that I wanted to be a mum but at the same time I think most women also think I want to be a mother but there's that fear am I cut out for it so you know you get sometimes you just have to meet someone that makes you think yes I am and other people that make you think, actually, no, that doesn't look like a, a cool thing to do at all. You know, I, I think yeah. we, can be, we can be influenced by the examples of other people. Yeah, there's quite a few things there to touch on, really. I don't think every woman finds it fulfilling or as fulfilling as she expects it to. Yeah. It's interesting the the piece about empowerment, how when you were younger, you saw these moms and they seemed more empowered. I think that's something that, has increased my attraction to people that have kids over people that don't Mm. is just, well, one is a shared experience. So you can, it's easy to understand certain aspects of their life because you have similar aspects in your own life, which makes intimacy easier, which makes attraction easier, if that makes sense. Mm. But there is a level of confidence you need to have as a parent and that you develop over time because you're able to keep this human being alive Alive. (laughs) and you go through really hard experiences and you face really hard things and you come out the other side and that gives you a sense of empowerment. That's, it's a very empowering thing to go through. 
Mm. You have to face yourself a lot. You become more connected to who you are and who you're not. Mm. You have to make a lot of decisions for your child and for your family and for yourself. And through that process, you become more you, hopefully, although the opposite can also happen when you're... Yeah. Um, but then that, it just kind of imbues you with a a confidence that I find attractive. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to hear what the most surprising things about motherhood have been (laughs) for you. Yeah. So for me, yeah, people, there's three main things. People always talk about the love that you feel for your child, right? Mm -hmm. I never knew love until I had a child. Yeah. I didn't know I could love somebody so much. You hear about that all the time. Mm. And it's true Mm. for me, in my experience, that is true. I love my son more than anything else. And all like my daughter already, like it's crazy the amount that I love them. Yeah. Because of that, I also have felt more fear than I've ever felt in my life. To the same degree that I feel love, I feel fear. Mm. Because it's risk, right? The more you risk, the more you love, then the more you have to lose. And so it just kind of comes with it. Mm. But I didn't really realize that until I felt it. And that really surprised me. I didn't expect to have to deal with that level of fear, like a fear that I've never, ever imagined possible. To the same degree that it increased my ability to feel love, it also increased my ability to be violent, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I also never realized before. Mm. Or I I didn't, that really surprised me about motherhood because it expands your whole spectrum, not just the one side of the spectrum. It increases everything. And so before I had kids, I was like, oh, I don't know that I could really ever kill somebody, you know? (laughs) And now that I have kids, it's like, if you're trying to kill my child, Mm. I would have no compunction in killing you. Like none. Yeah. I would kill somebody for sure. You know what I mean? That kind of sounds bad, but you watch a movie or something and think if I was ever in a situation like that woman is, is experiencing now, would I snap into action like that person? You think if it was, a, but someone was becoming between you and your child, you'd have superhuman strength. There's nothing that yeah. would stop you from, yeah. you know, you just know, you just know. It's this inner mama bear that it brings up. I was so excited that you wanted to talk again. And now I'm sitting here going, this is so cool because you, you know what you want to get out of the conversation as well. And you're very clear about what you want to get out of the conversation. You're, you've got me on my A game now because <laughs> I, I have to really sort of keep track. It's, it's nice to interview people and just let them talk. But this is an opportunity, a a teaching opportunity, or at least an observational opportunity for anybody who's listening to sort of reassure themselves in any way, shape or form about anything that they think they're doing wrong or or whatever. Uh, But just slightly circling back, slightly circling back to what you said about feeling more powerful and um, capable as a result of going through pregnancy and and motherhood and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I have said to, I've said it in articles and I've said, I'm pretty sure I've said it on the podcast. I've definitely said it to anyone who would listen. I was completely and utterly uh, in a, like a codependent type of relationship with the father of my 
to first two children. We had good times together and stuff, but he had the dominant personality and I was unable to argue with him about anything. He would just draw the shutters down, tell me, end of discussion, whatever. I was impotent. But the decision and the desire to have children was like he wanted to have a child eventually, but I was the one who pushed the issue of let's get pregnant now. And while I was pregnant, I was the one reading the books and and doing the research and, and preparing myself. By the way, listeners... Just letting you know, no matter how much you prepare yourself, yeah, it may all go out the window. Um, yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was, you know, doing the right things in inverted commas. And in that process, and then going through my first birth, which was particularly traumatic and ended up with a forceps delivery um, and having to recover from that was an absolute ordeal. And he was supportive in the best way that he knew how, but it was definitely something I went through alone and waking up at night to feed the baby alone. It was a real, you know, it's like being hit by a truck if you've, particularly if you do have a difficult birth. And these are the things that we don't normally have a lot of conversations about because we deify Mm -hmm. not only motherhood, but uh, vaginal childbirth by calling it natural childbirth and all this sort of stuff. And not many people talk about an ordeal because we don't want to put people off having babies or having vaginal childbirth, but it's a traumatic experience and people don't talk about it. So in retrospect, going through that, not just once, but three times. And I do remember more vividly with the third time being in the shower after delivering my third child, which was difficult, middle child, piece of cake, First and third, not so much. Looking down at myself in the shower after having delivered, and, you know, you look down at this plate of jelly. Yeah. And it's both a pathetic and beautiful thing to look at simultaneously. It goes through your mind that it's like this empty mound of flesh that used to be so so taut, feeling such empathy and uh, feeling so proud, like really, really proud of the achievement of doing the thing, doing the difficult thing. And in each case, each time I had babies, just realising that if I can do that, I can go through anything. And obviously there are worse things to go through, but in my life that was the worst and best thing that I went through and it gave me a sense of strength that I didn't know I had and that translated into like you were saying keeping the baby alive (laughs) that's 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 the job description what what's your what are you doing today well I'm making milk and I'm keeping my baby alive you know there's sort of that's and that's which frankly can be very overwhelming some days for like my husband found our son who was like two maybe at the time Mm, I think younger standing Mm. at the top of the stairs with a steak knife I have no idea Mm. how that happened Mm. (laughs) those things happen in every parent's life yeah yeah (laughs) those close calls or it could be so much worse and I think it's so important for parents or for moms or people 
who are going to have children to realize that everybody's experience is totally different and there's mm-hmm. no right way to have this experience. There's no right way to feel when you're pregnant. There's no right way to give birth. There's no right way to feel after. There's no, you're not broken if you have a high libido, if you have a low libido, you're not broken if you feel sexy when you're pregnant or if you don't feel sexy when you're pregnant. It's just mm-hmm. like everybody's experience is different and they're all okay and valid and you know we kind of make up all these stories about how it should be or I don't know it's just so important to connect to yourself yeah and then see to check in with yourself if you're if you're feeling healthy like if you're feeling healthy where you're at then that's great you know what I mean yeah it's hard to know how much of the input that we have around this stuff. It's hard to know how much of it is people saying this is the right way, this is the wrong way, and how much of it is us receiving it as I will be less than if I don't do it this way or the other. Totally. Yeah. Um, uh, how, what, our, what our expectations are and how, not perfectionist, but how vigilant are we and, and how, how inclined are we to beat ourselves up yeah, and that can cause moms so much stress. Yeah. So much stress, like just around breastfeeding. I've heard of women that have committed suicide because they can't breastfeed and they feel, they hear breast is best and mm. you're not giving your baby the nutrients they need if you use formula. And mm. there are communities where things like that are really pushed and it can cause so much stress which is way worse for the mom than anything else so absolutely I just feel like parents need to have so much compassion and grace with themselves Mm. no matter what they're going through absolutely I just want to say that yeah (laughs) all these subjects historically the 70s when formula I think formula has been around for a long time but when they really started to um, push formula they literally gave women formula sachets in the hospital and the formula companies encouraged the narrative that breastfeeding was unsanitary. So there was a time when I think about 80% of children were bottle fed and I'm not sure about the whole prudishness around breastfeeding, how that came into being, but I know that my mum, who was 38 when she had me, so, and my eldest sibling was 20 years older than me. So I grew up listening to her stories, not only that she breastfed her kids, I think till at least six or nine months, all of us, but there were times when she'd be hanging out with her sister-in-law and she had kids at the same age. And if they were babysitting the other person's kid, they would actually nurse the other person's kid as well. Right. And yeah, and there was sort of the functional use of the breast was 100% the way women thought of themselves more so back then in regards to breastfeeding being this is what we do because there wasn't an alternative and there's no being delicate around it as well, particularly among other women and stuff. It was just, that's what you do. My first child was conceived and born in 1987 And that's when the breast is best narrative was 
not only at its peak, so was the active birth, Lamas, all of these things were around natural, natural, peaceful, peaceful, lovely, lovely, everything's going to be sweetened and the angels are going to come down from heaven and, you know, there's going to be a daisy, daisies and birds and little deers wafting around. You know, it's just going to be the most wonderful thing. But also there's the nervousness around it and I did the preparation of put it, making sure I got out into the sun so that my nipples could become hardier and pinching them all the time to you know in preparation to make them they're going to get a shock with this baby latching on so let's you know so I was working working the boobs in preparation for breastfeeding like I was really super motivated um well I don't think anything can really prepare you for the amazing phenomenon of a child that can attach itself to a breast like a hoover yes like that very first time it happens (laughs) and you actually when you're latching on wrong you don't realize except that it's extremely painful how are their jaws so powerful how how can they do this (laughs) seriously they're they're so amazing you know um so yeah it's it it was hard so how did breastfeeding connect you to your sexuality oh well that's the thing the first baby not so much I did the thing, like took photos of me throughout the pregnancy for my growing belly and stuff for my own records. I wanted to appreciate what I was going through from the point of view of it's a beautiful thing and I'm becoming more beautiful. And wondering if I was going to worry too much about the after the baby and and how it was going to affect my body afterwards and you know would would my body bounce back and and all that sort of stuff so there was that pressure not I don't think not only from society but also my partner I felt I felt that he was into this situation but he was also looking forward to when I was going to go back to normal because it was inconvenient I guess everybody's different with how they approach these things but I loved being pregnant absolutely loved being pregnant for every other reason, except for the, obviously those last couple of weeks, which is awkward and stuff. But you, you're never alone. From the moment your pregnancy test comes back positive, you're never alone. You're like, I am two people now. Everywhere yeah. I go, it's me and this person, and we've got this relationship. That every time you feel the baby move, you just smile to yourself because you are two people at once. And for that, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. After he was born, I had engorgement and he was very very fussy and it was it was a good few months of very very hard diligent work to establish and feel confident Mm -hmm. that I was going to be able to continue which is pretty normal I think especially the first kid yeah and I was really spooked by all the literature around if you do this you will lose your milk or if you do that you will lose your milk or this, you know, all these, all these things um, that you have to, so I was drinking lots of water and, you know, demand feeding and all these things that came naturally to me anyway. I was overzealous with feeding him to begin with. I should have given him more gaps between because <laughs> I was just like, oh, you're crying, here, boob, crying. Oh, here, have another boob. So <laughs> I learned, I learned a lot of uh, interesting things along the way but babies are very resilient and you know 
they don't know they're an experiment. Thank God. <laughs> they don't know they're an experiment. Yeah. They, <laughs> they're, just, they're like being picked up. Um, I have or had still dodgy sphincter muscles in my nipples, which is to say that every time I let down, I would leak milk. I would never not leak milk. So if I was feeding on one side, milk would be pissing out of the other breast. Yeah. But if I was at the supermarket and a baby would cry, yep. immediately I would let down. And, and it, I, fed, right. I fed each of the kids um, for 18 months and that was never not the case. The leak was just less after a while, but it was still, I would still leak. So this didn't make me feel particularly attractive somewhere along the line I know that somewhere along the line that even though my I I kept my partner away from my breasts because they they just felt you know sensitive and they just felt different because they've got milk in them now yeah it's (laughs) like you're having sex and milk is coming out and you're like yeah yeah and then when you realize it and get used to it and know that this is going to happen, then you prepare with take a towel with you and, and be, be aware that the milk is going to be um, happening and all that sort of stuff. And it's funny because it's 33 years ago now to remember the first time. And I just know that I, I not only adjusted, I've kind of factored it in that what during sex you're aware the moment that you, you your milk lets down like yep. because of oxytocin and and all yep. the all the activity that's going on the milk lets down your first instinct is to feel odd and awkward and kind of oh, but I've got to ignore it I've, but I've got to ignore it it's you know uh, focus on whatever else is going on but I feel that because I can't just have been later on I'm pretty sure it was there was times when I just really felt that my sexuality and having sex and being a mother and breastfeeding collided in me realizing that I am an animal. So those moments when you're curled up with your baby and breastfeeding, you know, they need you and you're not just feeding the baby but making them feel comforted and safe and secure and you have this feeling of I at this moment in time I am a lioness with her cub I'm a I'm a puppy I'm a dog with a puppy I'm a cat with a kitten you feel this connection to yourself as a fellow mammal and the, I know that there's this psychological shift that went on with me within me of belonging to this earth more than I thought about before yeah and that in turn translated itself to how I felt about my partner and my ability to be um, not just a desired person, but also that person's safe person, that person's uh, source of comfort and and stuff. So I do feel that I connected more to myself at a spiritual level mm-hmm. during this process of my body does things that I have no control over. That's, I think, the cool thing about 
going through labor, the idea that your body is doing something that, uh, that you have no control over mm-hmm. is phenomenal. It's, mm. I can't even describe how, uh, what, a, what a psychological shift it was for me to realize that I am a homo sapien. I am a, you know, I, I, I'm equipped with this facility. I think it just made me melt into my body more. Yeah, it makes sense that both giving birth and breastfeeding can connect you to your wild woman, your mother nature nature, yeah, and your animal nature. Mm. And by doing so, by sort of reclaiming or refinding those parts of us that we often as women bury because of our culture and our society, we're not encouraged to be that. No. By reclaiming that or finding it through those avenues, then that would hugely impact your sexuality because finding your inner wild woman or your animal nature in bed is like Mm. mind blowing and super Mm. fun and really amazing. Mm. So I totally see the connection now. That's very cool. Mm. Mm. When I, after I weaned my second child, before I met my second husband, um, Right up until we met and when we met, I still could get one or two drops of milk out of my breasts. And this is eight years after he was born. And again, Did you I, try to do that? Well, I was aware because, because of these sphincter muscles, it's just the most unsexy part of this conversation, um, that there was always sort of a certain amount of um, something there on my nipple or in my nipple, um, and I would just squeeze the the sack just behind the nipple and express that drop. And I think I was kind of motivated to see how long my breasts were going to keep doing this. I was fascinated by it. And it'd just be, you know, a couple of drops of liquid. Yeah. Um, so when we met and we, we were having and sorry, sex. sorry, that was when you were having sex, but the milk. Well, no, the milk. The the mi- no, no, whenever, whenever. I'd, whenever I'd have a shower or something and I'd remember, I'd just think, oh, I wonder if I could still get milk out of them and I'd give them, okay. a, give them a bit of a squeeze. Mm-hmm. So, and this was, um, yeah, so he was eight when I met um, my second husband and we were seeing each other for a while. And I mentioned to him that I could still get milk out of my breasts. And he was like, I don't really, you know, and I should. <laughs> so I showed him and it was like I say, just a couple of drops And I, when I showed him and it just, um, he lost it. And when I say lost it, he was so turned on and ravished me afterwards. And that. Nice. That completely and utterly changed my idea, uh, not only my idea about my boobs being a no-go zone, but suddenly I, I became all about my boobs, like all about my boobs, suck my tits. These, you know, they, this is where it's at. Like I, I knew that everything else worked. I knew all about my vulva, my clitoris, my vagina, all this sort of stuff, but let's work on these for a while. <laughs> so you just kind of discovered it then? It was, I think I always enjoyed having my boobs played with, 
but the intensity, like having an orgasm yeah. while, while my boobs are being sucked was, was relatively uncommon. Have you ever had a breast orgasm? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's when we got into that, mm-hmm. then, then it became... Like just from breast Just from having my nipples sucked, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. still on my to-do list. Yeah. Um, I think it's, again, I think it's um, it's not exactly an easy thing to do, but when, but when you're into it, when I was really, really into it, um, you have to then be patient. Because if you're used to being a, being orgasmic, you you don't necessarily rush it, but you like to know that it's going to happen. But when you're doing something that is a an unknown, whether it's going to happen or whether it's not going to happen, you can sort of self sabotage by not allowing the time that is needed for it totally. to for it to come about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so good advice. Yeah. So yeah. So a few times. There we leave it. Isn't that a bit of a tease? I will drop the second part of that conversation towards the end of the week, if not on the weekend. I have quite a busy week ahead of me. I have to interview my next guest tomorrow. That's going to be interesting. I've dropped hints about that before. Stay tuned. It's going to be fucking wild. Um, It's also my youngest son's 23rd birthday. Some people may recall me talking to him on this podcast about the fact that we're both bisexual. My little baby's 23. Where did the time go? I think you can see now why I felt like I wanted to preface all the sexuality stuff by honouring the journey of motherhood it can't just only be about sex (laughs) it's got to be about the journey of motherhood the fullness of the experience I want to not only reach out to you and get you to second guess and re-examine how you think of women who are mothers and how you think about motherhood and pregnancy and all those things either as someone who hasn't experienced yet or someone who has no intention of experiencing it Um, a glimpse into the entirety of this world before talking too much about um, the fun bits, which is in the second part of the conversation. There's got to be balance. Hey, remember earlier on I told you I had exciting news? I am now affiliated with a purveyor of fine sexual health and pleasure products. It's a small business that is based in Melbourne, has been around for a few years, and in fact, when it opened, it became the first retailer of gender-free sex toys. It is the perfect fit for me as a content creator and podcaster because they're all about inclusivity, diversity, accessibility, They've got a mission statement, core values written on their website and they support many organisations at a grassroots level as well. So I'm going to get choked up, guys, because (laughs) I'm just stoked. I just think it's perfect. It's kismet that this wonderful company, they go by the name Nikki Darling and I are in cahoots now 
And this means for you and me that if you use my link to their website, that I get a little tiny percentage of whatever it is you purchase. But also it means that occasionally I will come to you and give you a discount based on the fact that you use a code I provide. I can do that now, actually. The code is eloquent. The link to have a look at the website and perhaps purchase one of their wonderful products is in the show notes. And there's also a link to a review that I did of a fantastic product that I got to say, I went in feeling a little bit excited, but a lot skeptical as as well. I wasn't sure if it would be able to do for me what I wanted it to do for me. And what I wanted it to do for me was something that it's not specifically designed for. Have I got you intrigued yet? I hope so. So you can watch that review either jumping on my Instagram or just click the link to the uh, review on my YouTube channel. And don't forget, click the link to Nikki Darling's website via my affiliate link and use the code ELOQUENT and you get 5% off anything in the store. So until next time, I'm going to leave you with this fantastic tune from Amanda Palmer. I'm taking great liberties by dropping her music into my podcast. This is the second time I've done it. The first time I threw the Vegemite song into uh, my Christmas podcast as a Christmas carol. (laughs) And this time I'm dropping in a tune from her album, There Will Be No Intermission, which she wrote when her son was born. He was actually a few months old and she talks about the early days of being a mother and it just seemed that it would be poignant to throw it in at this juncture. So I hope Amanda doesn't mind. I've been a patron of Amanda Palmer on Patreon for five or six years, so um, I'm doing this to promote her music. Speaking of Patreon, I have one. I have two patrons now. Two wonderful, kind men have jumped onto my Patreon Uh, to make me feel like someone's in my corner in that respect, giving me a little push, a little kick up the bum, a little more motivation. So that's my exciting news times too. If you want to become a patron on my Patreon, go to patreon.com forward slash the eloquent in the room, one word. Thanks again for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Treat yourself well. And if you know any pregnant women in your life, treat them well. If you know any new mothers in your life, make a bunch of dinners for them to stick in their freezer to make their life a little bit more easy in these very, very difficult early days and weeks of motherhood. So yeah, sexier part of the conversation coming up next time. Talk to you soon. Our son is four months old, his name is Anthony, or Ash for short, and he's too small to do things by himself. We were in LA over Christmas in a rental, and we jury-rigged a place to change his diapers on a shelf. I was peeing in the bathroom and had left for just a second, cause I thought he couldn't move and he was safe. 
As I came out, I saw him falling in slow motion to the floor. It was probably the worst moment of my life. Accidentally stole a thing of chapstick from the Safeway I didn't see it till we got out to the car I would have usually returned it But I was overwhelmed and late to take the baby to my cousins up in Carmel Bay In my defense I'd bought like $87 worth of groceries And the chapstick was $1.99 I know it wasn't the right thing to use my newborn child as an excuse But it felt like a good reason at the time And as I pulled out of the parking lot I cried and as I pulled out on the highway I said right at least the baby didn't die at least the baby didn't die and then we went to Sarasota to see Neil's cousin Helen for her birthday. She just turned 99. We were also there for Sydney, who was 94 two days before, but he was sick, so mostly it was Ash and Helen time. She survived the Warsaw Ghetto. And she always says, I love you. And she sees you cause she knows you never know. She'd worked for months while I was pregnant on a gorgeous handmade blanket. Her almost hundred year old hands crocheting every row. I'd been emailing her pictures of the baby and the Every day since she had sent it in the mail But they were of one that someone else had knitted She was really nice about it Then I went and shoplifted A pair of ugly sunglasses from Goodwill They were on my head I tried them on and left them there But that's not really bad when we left the baby in the car At least he wasn't in there very long And not directly in the sun And thank God no one walking by happened to notice what we'd done I'm even scared to put these lyrics in a song But everything is relative And everyone's real
figure everything is technically all right if at least this baby doesn't die and then i took a plane to washington alone so we could visit jason webley who's his godfather and plays a mean accordion i couldn't wait to see him and share tales of our disasters over dinners in his houseboat when i saw i'd lost my passport so i got a rush appointment at the place where you replace them and i drove the baby in and on the way i got a speeding ticket when the cop came to the window i was shaking and i said i'm sorry but you couldn't hear me that's how loud the sound of screaming was cause he was hungry and i think that i was speeding cause i panic when i hear him cry my god what kind of
I know it's hard to be a parent, but this mess is so gigantic. I wonder if I should have had a child. And as I pulled out of the parking lot, I cried. And as I pulled out on the highway, I said, Right. At least the baby died.